there's lots and lots of things going on in Medidi at the moment. And it's actually one of the places where tourism, sustainable, responsible, low impact tourism can actually have a really positive impact. And you get to see truly one of the most incredible places on earth. Hello, and welcome to the Better Travel Podcast, the show that helps you be a smarter, better traveler. I am your host, travel journalist Paige McClanahan, here today to bring you a fascinating conversation all about a country that, honestly, I didn't know very much about at all until just a few weeks ago. But now that country is right there at the very top of the places that I would love to have the chance to explore. So the country is Bolivia, a South American nation that's home to high deserts, Amazonian rainforest, snow-capped mountains, and of course, a cultural history that is just as rich and diverse as its natural landscape. Here to help us get to know this fascinating place is today's guest, travel writer, journalist, and author Shafik Meji. Shafik has traveled and worked all over the world, but he says that Bolivia kept drawing him back in, which is why he decided to make the country the subject of his recent book, which is called Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. So Shafik's book has been named one of the travel books of the year by the Washington Post, National Geographic Traveler, and Wanderlust magazines. Of course, I read the book myself before speaking to Shafik, and yes, I can absolutely attest that his book is both engrossing and informative and a wonderful introduction to this fascinating country. But Shafik's expertise goes a lot farther than Bolivia. He has worked on six continents, six continents as a travel guidebook writer. He's co-authored the rough guides to countries like India, Australia, Egypt, and Mexico, to name just a few. So in addition to talking about Bolivia, Shafik and I also had a great discussion about travel writing and how it's changing. He shared what it's really like to work as a guidebook author, as well as what it was like for him to switch from his first job, which was as a sports journalist, to what he does today, which is covering the weird, wide, and wonderful world of travel. So I started my conversation with Shafik by asking him if he could share the story behind the title he chose for the book, which again is Crossed Off the Map. The tale behind the title was actually one of the first inspirations behind the book. When I heard it, I was captivated by it. So it's an apocryphal tale about a diplomatic spat between a British ambassador in La Paz and a rather eccentric, power-hungry Bolivian president. And the uh, Bolivian president was known for his philandering, had a mistress, invited the ambassador to a party to celebrate said mistress. The ambassador refused to go, and he was then stripped naked and put on an ass, a donkey, and paraded around the main square in La Paz. And when word of this reached Queen Victoria back in the UK, she was upset, as you can imagine, took a map of South America and ceremoniously crossed Bolivia's name off it and declared that Bolivia did not exist. Now, I should say, like lots of great stories, this is almost certainly an apocryphal tale. But for me, it really, it was a lovely route into writing a book about Bolivia, because even though it's an apocryphal tale, it's something that's well known in South America. It's known as the Black Legend. And to me, it seemed that in some ways, Bolivia really had been crossed off the map. It's particularly outside of South America. Very little is known about it. It's not often written about. Travel writers often hurry through it en route to somewhere else. It's an absolutely fascinating country. And also kind of, you know, it's dealing with many of the incredibly topical issues of the 21st century that we're either all dealing with now or that we're going to be dealing with in the future. So that's one of the things that drew me into the country initially. 
Fantastic. And I love that story of the book's title. I mean, because I think it's kind of emblematic of what you do throughout the book, which is to weave together these kind of historical tales or apocryphal tales or characters or phenomena with Bolivia's modern opportunities and challenges. And I'd love to ask you about one part of the book where I think you do this really nicely, and that is Tiwanaku, if I pronounce that correctly. Tell us about this place, and I wonder if you could describe how you approached writing this section of the book. Tiwanaku, just in case people aren't aware of it, it was a huge indigenous Andean society, a forerunner of the Inca, and it kind of heavily influenced their culture and their approach to empire. And it's close to late Titicaca. It's in between La Paz and late Titicaca today. And the capital is now a ruin. And I, th- I think perhaps the reason it's not better known is that it's not quite as well preserved as something like Machu Picchu, so people or the you know the the Maya or Aztec ruins in Mexico. And also because the Incas so dominate our perception of indigenous societies before 1492 in South America. But Tiwanaku absolutely is an absolutely fascinating, fascinating place. So I've, you know, I visited it a couple of times during my research. And one, it was interesting because today you go there and it's ruined and it has a grandeur to it, but you need a certain amount of imagination to bring it to life. But there's a lot of argument that, in fact, some of it was always at least partly ruined and that was to kind of give the civilization a sense of history and grandeur that helped that helped the rulers to dominate a huge swathe of the Andes into modern day Peru and Chile and and Argentina as well as Bolivia. So I was fascinated with that. I was fascinated with the influence on the Inca, on the on the belief system and the beliefs that you see today in Bolivian society. And also the end of the, you know, the end or the fall of the Tiwanaku civilization, because again, that ties in with something that I increasingly write about as a travel writer and journalist, and particularly from a Bolivian context, which is climate change and dramatic climate change. And according to all traditions, the reason that the Tiwanaku Empire fell or, or collapsed or dispersed was because of dramatic climate change of, of floods and droughts that lasted for decades. So it was a fascinating place on lots and lots of different levels, but I also thought it had kind of lots of echoes for us today and perhaps even messages about coping with climate change and kind of the impact that it can have dramatically on these great dominating societies. Mm, Amazing. And you also write about how Evo Morales has used this place as kind of, you know, didn't he hold his inauguration ceremony there? I think you write. Yeah. What are the links to modern politics? Yeah, so it's very closely associated with the Aymara indigenous group, which is one of the biggest indigenous groups in Bolivia. And Evo Morales, who almost 20 years ago became the first indigenous president of a South American nation and who played heavily on his his Aymara heritage and, I should say, did a huge amount to actually improve the status of indigenous people, certainly certain indigenous groups in Bolivia. But yeah, he very, very explicitly tied his political career in with the heritage of Tiwanaku as he held his inaugurations there. He explicitly drew links between himself and this forerunner empire, you know, a, a, you know, a thousand years previously or so. And he also used a lot of the iconography of Tiwanaku and in indigenous societies more generally, kind of both in, in his 
literature, but also uh, he had a very controversial presidential palace built in the center of La Paz, an absolutely huge building. And a lot of the iconography was there. So it wasn't particularly subtle, <laughs> but it's been very interesting to see how he drew you know, very, very clear parallels to bolster his authority in the country. Later in the book, you take us to a place that has a very different natural setting and also very different links to Bolivia's social and environmental history. I'm thinking of the Medidi National Park, where I find your writing really evocative and it just that sounds like a fascinating place. But can you tell us about this park and how it's at the center of some tensions for modern Bolivia? Most people, most outsiders who haven't visited Bolivia think of it as an Andean country, but actually around a third of it lies within the Amazon Basin. And lots of it are protected by national parks and reserves. And the best known and my favourite is Park National Medidi, which is roughly the size of Wales. And it's the most biodiverse place on Earth. There's absolutely thousands and thousands of species, many of which are endemic. And it's an incredible place to explore. I've been very lucky through researching this book and through working as, as a guidebook author to have spent a lot of time there over the years. And it's an absolutely mesmerizing place. You swim with pink river dolphins, for example. You see six-meter-long anacondas, incredible range of birds, the jaguars and other big cats. And there's a real range of ecosystems, you know, from, from rainforest to wetlands to savanna to Andean foothills. And it's also home to significant indigenous communities as well. But, I mean, as you know, you may be able to imagine there's a sting in the tail here. And like the Amazon in neighboring Brazil and in Peru and in Ecuador and, and so on, there are lots and lots of challenges. And when I was writing the book, I saw some of these firsthand. There were plans for a huge hydroelectric dam under the aforementioned Evo Morales, which would flood hundreds of square kilometers of the park, it would displace indigenous communities, it would have a huge impact on the wildlife. But this is just one of the, you know, this this is ongoing at the moment, but this is just one of the threats. I saw gold miners since the global financial crisis, the price of gold has gone up, and with it has illegal gold mining within the Amazon and in, in part National Medellin. And it's so remote that it's very difficult to clamp down on, even if the authorities desire to do so. And this pollutes the landscape, it leads to deforestation, this huge deforestation, not just in Medidi, but kind of across Bolivia. Very, you know, we hear a lot about Brazil, but it's a very, very similar case in Bolivia and sometimes more severe. So you see this, you see the road building that's being driven by not just the miners, but also poachers and loggers and so on. And to mention poachers, jaguars are, are being targeted. It used to have quite a big community of them, a big population of them. Now they're, you know, they're increasingly being targeted. So there's a lot of these issues going on. But there are also flashes of hope as well. And it's home to a really pioneering indigenous-run eco-lodge called Chalalan, which has helped to transform a you know, very deprived community there. And it's also sparked off lots of other really positive ecotourism projects. So it's kind of, there's, there's lots and lots of things going on in Medidi at the moment. And it's actually one of the places where tourism, sustainable, responsible, low impact tourism can actually have a really positive impact. And you get to see truly one of the most incredible places on earth. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah, your description of that ecolodge in the book was very enticing, I have to say. But I think you also write that actually, in your years of visiting this part of Bolivia, you've actually seen tourist numbers go down. Is that right? I first visited back in 2004. I was just a backpacker. I hadn't done any travel writing at that point. I was just there purely for pleasure. And at that time, 
Ruinabake, which is the gateway town to Medidi National Park. You know, it was a real traveler hub. It was very much on the Gringo Trail that goes around South America. But as you say, visitor numbers have fallen in recent years. Now, obviously, most recently, the pandemic has had a huge impact on tourism in Bolivia and South America more generally, and obviously across across the world. But it's a combination of factors from park fees being hiked to more arduous tourist visa conditions for US travelers and Israeli travelers who typically would make up a big number of the visitors there. And also, unfortunately, the Bolivian Amazon and the region just below the Amazon also, also been hit by terrible wildfires in recent years there have been floods and so on and so all of these things have kind of had had an impact so despite being the world's most biodiverse protected area despite being home to a profusion of wildlife it's absolutely incredible to see somewhere that you would have thought would would draw a huge number of tourists numbers have fallen in my experience which is typically very rare and and pre-pandemic wasn't reflected across across bolivia so it's a fine balancing act obviously we want numbers to go up but not so much that it has a negative negative impact but here is somewhere where where sustainable tourism really has made a difference at protecting the environment and it needs to be in place to help give local people an economic incentive to help conserve the environment Interesting, interesting. You mentioned earlier your work as a guidebook author for the Rough Guides in Bolivia. I imagine you really got to know the country very well, you know, in a lot of depth doing that work. What inspired you to write this kind of a book about Bolivia as well? The initial spark came from my very first visit to Bolivia and to South America as a backpacker in 2004. I wasn't a travel journalist. I was a sports writer at that time. And I didn't know much about Bolivia at all. I just wanted to go to Rio for Carnival and hike the Inca Trail and eat steak in Buenos Aires and all of these kind of things. But I ended up traveling through Bolivia to get to Peru. And I I was captivated by it from almost the moment I crossed the border. And I realized it was so diverse. The geographical splendor attracted me initially it's home to the world's highest cities the world's largest salt flat the world's largest high altitude lake the world's most dangerous road the aforementioned Medidi National Park I was absolutely captivated by it but then when I got home and I tried to read you know I wanted to read more about it there, there really wasn't much contemporary English language books written about out Bolivia outside of academia Anyway, scroll forward a few years and I became a travel writer, partly inspired by my experiences in Bolivia. And I was lucky enough to work on the Rough Guide to Bolivia, which allowed me to explore the country from top to tail, kind of gave me an excuse to spend lots and lots of time over many years there. And while I was there, as I say, initially it was the natural wonders of Bolivia that captured my attention. And I thought, oh, this would make a great subject for a travel log, talking about this and talking about you know, the incredible indigenous cultures there that uh, there are very little known about beyond the country. But then I started to learn more about the history and began to realise that, as unlikely as it may seem, Bolivia helped to shape the modern world in various different ways, and that these fragments of history have largely been lost beyond its borders. And also, I saw, you know, in real time, contemporary issues defining issues of the 21st century from the climate crisis to populism to the war on drugs to name just a few 
were being played out in Bolivia. Bolivia was on the front line of these issues. And so I revised my idea for a book and I wanted to look back at its incredible history and then also look at its contemporary challenges, which I think have a lot to say, not just about this fascinating, underappreciated country, but also speak to us wherever we are in the world. You know, it felt like the future had already arrived in Bolivia to a certain extent. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I agree, this absolutely isn't a sort of, quote unquote, typical travel log. I mean, I almost think of it as sort of a current affairs book with some kind of on the ground reporting and history sort of woven in. And I love that approach, because I feel like this approach to travel writing, you know, going as in depth as you do, it kind of empowers people who are going to visit Bolivia to have a more meaningful experience of the country. And it also probably makes us more sensitive and compassionate visitors because we sort of understand, you know, the country and all its sort of nuances. Did you have these kinds of things in your mind as you were planning and writing the book? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say I had these concerns before writing the book. I mean, really, throughout my life as a travel writer, writing guidebooks, writing features and so on. I was always interested personally as a traveler in the, in the context of the country. You know, you can just go and have a superficial experience and just enjoy the beautiful scenery and eat some delicious food and, and so on. But, I, you know, I'm always interested in the stories behind it, the context behind it. And in my travel writing, I've always wanted to, you know, give people a deeper understanding of the context of the place that they're visiting. In some cases, so that they hopefully can make better or more informed choices about how they spend their money while they're there and places they visit and so on and it was certainly something that I wanted to do with crossed off the map I mean I I like the form of travel writing because it's such a broad church and it, it just it allows you to bring lots and lots of different elements in and I think to take the climate emergency is just just one of them I think almost in in my Bolivia writing but almost any of my travel writing on the UK or, or wherever the climate crisis fits into it on, on some levels and I think for too long travel writing is ignored or brushed over issues like this like human rights which is another issue of you know intense interest and importance to me there's been too much kind of just a positive sugar-coated portrayal of places and to be honest I'm, I'm not interested in doing that and I think readers also want to know to be given a real picture of places so they're better informed so they have a richer experience and so they can also make more informed judgments so that's what I've hoped to do with Cross Off the Map. Oh fantastic well I think you succeed very well in doing that and as you say I mean I think you know we are seeing more of this kind of travel writing and I think there's more appetite among readers to consume this kind of writing this kind of reporting and I think there's less sort of maybe less tolerance among readers to put up with stories that do just kind of gloss over the nuances and kind of problems and challenges of a place. I think readers are more sensitive to when they're kind of having something kind of glossed over. As you write in the book, Bolivia has kind of remained off the main kind of tourist track, especially as compared with maybe Brazil or Argentina or some other countries in the region. Why do you think that is? And how have you seen tourism evolving in Bolivia in the years that you've been visiting? I could probably talk to you for hours about why that is, but I'll try and keep it brief. I think one of the, one of the problems is, is, I mean, Bolivia is geographically in the heart of South America, but it's surrounded by bigger, more powerful and wealthier countries, you know, Brazil and Argentina and Chile and, and Peru, to name just a few. And I think they've often overshadowed. Typically in the past, it was a bit more difficult and or more expensive to travel to Bolivia. There's not a huge amount of direct flights from Europe or from North America. 
either. I think also there's been, certainly within Latin America and beyond, there's prejudice because, you know, Bolivia has a very strong indigenous character. And there's a lot of prejudice and racism and discrimination within Latin America and beyond. So I think all of those kind of things have combined. And I think my own profession, travel writers and journalists have often overlooked it. You know, it, it rarely features, you know, in the international media. And typically the stories that do pop up are, you know, some kind of political scandal or natural disaster or so on. There's just very little writing about it. So um, I think all of those things have kind of combined. But certainly from a travel point of view, when people actually do visit it and when they, you know, and, and when they get beyond, and particularly if they go beyond the Andean region, then they suddenly discover this is an absolutely incredible place and it offers really the aforementioned incredible scenery, but also it's incredibly culturally rich too. And before the pandemic, visitor numbers were going up. I think there were more than a million, I think in 2018 or early 2019 before from English language countries alone. So that was changing a bit, but then obviously the pandemic has had had a huge impact. Bolivia was badly affected by the pandemic and obviously that has had knock-on effects on the tourism industry more generally that you know we'll see playing out for years to come so that's obviously had a had a, had a knock but one of the nice things about doing this book actually is but you know i've been doing talks and interviews and that kind of thing and a few readers have got in touch to say they've been inspired to actually go and visit believe it which i think is the biggest compliment i could possibly get because i'm a you know from the point i visited first you know you become an evangelist for it because it offers so much and yeah it deserves to be better known yeah exactly and i think you're exactly right that you know a little bit of bad press for a country can really stick in people's minds for a long time i mean my husband and i lived in sierra leone for two years about 10 years ago before ebola and i was trying to pitch travel stories about this beautiful West African country, which has kind of like gorgeous white sand beaches and, you know, rolling kind of jungly hills and stuff. And yeah, that was a hard sell. I mean, people just thought of the, you know, the Civil War had been over for a decade. It was very peaceful. And, you know, when people thought of Sierra Leone, they thought of one thing, they didn't think of it as a vacation destination. So I know what you mean, like a place can kind of get stuck in your head. And ever since I've been trying, you know, I've been a sort of Sierra Leone evangelist, (laughs) because it's so hard to shift a narrative about a place. No, it absolutely, absolutely is. And, you know, Sierra Leone is on my to-visit list as well, funnily enough. My sister lived out there for a while. So, um, I, and it, as you say, it, it's such a shame. At least we in the media can play something of a part now in, in helping to portray another side of it or, you know, it provide a more rounded view of places and to say, actually, the, you know, the, the, there's lots and lots of incredible places out there that just deserve greater attention. And Bolivia and Sierra Leone will be uh, two of those. There you go. There you go. I mean, even as an American who lives outside the United States, you know, when I read news stories about the US, which I know very well, it's kind of like, oh, my God, like, I would be scared to go there. And then I go visit my parents. And it's just, you know, but yeah, the perception of a place you get through the media, obviously, is not the full story. And, you know, every place in the world deserves kind of a deeper look than the headlines maybe sometimes give it. But I would love to ask you more about your guidebook writing, because you have authored or co-authored more than 40 travel guidebooks. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. From, you know, India, Costa Rica, Egypt, Chile, Mexico, Paris. You know, a lot of people might say you're living the dream. Is this what you wanted to do when you were a kid? And can you talk about the daily life of a guidebook writer? 
as a kid, like lots of people in the UK and indeed around the world, I wanted to be a football player, a soccer player. But when that didn't work out, sadly, I wanted to do the what I thought would be the next best thing, which would be to become a, a sports journalist. So all through my teens, through university, that was my plan. I did a journalism course after after doing my politics degree and then worked at a London Evening Standard newspaper as a news and sports reporter. But then essentially Wanderlust kicked in. I hadn't taken a gap year. I'd always loved traveling. You know, I'd always wanted to visit India where I have, you know, family heritage and and also South America, which I'd just been captivated watching David Attenborough documentaries as a kid and reading about the Amazon and places like Patagonia. So I, you know, I resigned and went backpacking for, uh, you know, the best part of a year around India and South America. And that was my first visit to Bolivia. But while I was there, I was using Lonely Planet guides. I was using rough guides. And I thought, you know, wow, that would be a great job. I wonder who does it. How could I, you know, how could I get involved? So it's kind of, you know, I did my first small bits of travel writing on that trip. And when I got back to London, I thought this is what I want to do. And I mistakenly thought it would be relatively easy to change careers. And, it, you know, it, t- it took a lot of a lot of letters and emails and phone calls and banging your head against the door. But um, eventually, after about a year, I got a commission for Rough Guides uh, to work on the Rough Guides of the Baltic States covering Estonia, which was actually a lovely introduction to the industry. And then you know, once my foot was in the door, it, it spiraled from there. And I was very lucky to, you know, as I say, I've worked on more than more than 40 guides. You know, I've worked on six continents with the guidebooks as well. And it's, you know, it's taken me all over, you know, to places that I wouldn't otherwise have had the chance to visit, you know, Easter Island, the Galapagos, the high Himalayas and you know, the outback and places like that. Now, I appreciate this just sounds like a fantastic dream job. And I should say that the day-to-day reality of it is not is not as glamorous, sadly, as I've probably made it sound. To be honest, working on a guidebook is a bit of a is a logistical challenge. It's it's trying to pack as much into, you know, and to do a decent amount of research in as short a period of time as possible. And you spend countless hours. I mean, I would have spent weeks, maybe even months of my life in bus stations and train stations and airports and on various forms of often quite uncomfortable transport going from one place to the other and some guides would have you know wouldn't spend more than a night in a single place and you know there's a lot of gathering of practical information on opening times and prices and that kind of stuff don't get me wrong i absolutely absolutely love it and it takes you to incredible places and there are glamorous moments to it, but it's it's incredibly full on. You're you know you're not quite working twenty four hours a day, but there's not much time off. But you get used to sleeping in whenever you can, and you get used to writing up notes and doing interviews and all of these kind of things wherever you can on the fly and on the hoof. And it's been an absolutely great experience, and it's allowed me to return multiple times to places. Which so it's been really interesting, you know, obviously in Bolivia, but you know, across the world to see how places have changed and places develop and and so on. So it gives you a deep insight into places, and you and you and you make friendships and you forge really strong connections. Which is, you know, when it comes down to it, travel is all about people and meeting new people and experiencing new cultures, and it's been absolutely wonderful for that. And you know, hopefully along the way, I've kind of helped to give people a bit of encouragement or bit of confidence to do a bit of their own independent traveling as well which you know for me is always the best way to go 
Yeah, fantastic. Well, I can imagine, I mean, just hearing you describe the kind of daily grind of the guidebook writing, you know, comparing that with the sort of research that it takes to write the sort of book that you wrote about Bolivia, you know, maybe it's a nice kind of contrast. But are you still doing guidebook writing now? Or, you know, what's next for you? I do fewer guidebooks now just because of because of the time pressures available though I, st- I, st- I still do the old ones and i'm hopefully actually going to go back to latin america later in the year to do a bit of work on one but i'm writing a lot of travel features and book reviews at the moment and i'm also kind of in the foothills of working on the next the next book as well which is also focused on south america and kind of takes a similar approach to uh bolivia but with a kind of wider canvas so i'm working on all those projects at the moment and travel writing one of the, the great pleasures is having a bit of diversity and and that not every day is the same so it's it's been nice to kind of piece those together and also obviously you know planning some research trips for the future as well which was also always good fun well, Shafik, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your writing and particularly this book and about Bolivia. I have never been to Bolivia. And yes, you can count me among the people who are now inspired to visit the country thanks to your book. So thanks again and best of luck in all of your future writing. Oh, thanks so much, Paige. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely thrilled that I've got you hooked on Bolivia. I look forward to uh, hearing about your travels there in the future. Well, there you go. What a lovely guy, Shafik Meji. His book is crossed off the map, Travels in Bolivia. Of course, there's a link to the book in the show notes for you if you're interested. I've also added links to Shafik's website, as well as to where you can find him on Twitter and Instagram. It's all at Shafik Meji. So that's it for this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. If you enjoyed the show today, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast or leave me a rating or review. It just takes a few seconds, but honestly, it really means a lot. You've been listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. Jessica Danheiser composed our score, and the fantastic team at We Edit Podcasts edited this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you in two weeks. 